0: Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. And combined, neither of us is half of of an Oprah Winfrey. Holy shit, what an interview, Ben.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, like, as someone who talks too much, um, (laughs) the, the, (laughs) the genius of not talking uh as an interviewer uh definitely came across and it was like i was it was gripping it was riveting television it
0: it was riveting we're gonna give the people what they want we're gonna get to that later but you gotta hint over like she is she's the best in the business for a reason yeah you know what i learned from her uh it was as you just said shut up and listen yeah and then also from oprah and terry gross you learn the power of like Crafting the shortest question possible, which I literally never do on this show. Yeah. Because <laughs> I just I recite a ton of context, but it is amazing how much they like are able to get people to open up just by saying one sentence. Well,
1: and one other thing I learned is, and Terry Gross does this well too. If someone says something kind of interesting, don't move on to the next question. Like no. just keep them on it. Uh, and and kind of keep them on it by agreeing with them. (laughs) And I've actually gotten in trouble as an interviewee. (laughs) The most times I've gotten in trouble is when the interviewer was acting like they agreed with me and getting me to talk more and more and more. You know, Um,
0: she definitely did did that really well. (laughs) She did that really, really well. Um, So we have a lot of great stuff to cover today. We are going to talk about, I feel like we could talk about this every week, another major hack uh, of an American software company that has, potentially massive implications. We'll do an update on Biden's efforts to end the war in Afghanistan. Reports that the Biden team is reviewing all of their counterterrorism policies, including the use of drones. We're going to talk about these protests in Senegal. Uh, To everyone on social media who tweeted at us about covering this, thank you, actually. You got it on my radar screen, so that really helps. Uh, Pineapple in Taiwan, a Russian disinformation campaign against COVID vaccines. Progress of the Pentagon, we'll explain why. Bombshell news out of Brazil. Uh, And then, as we said, the Meghan Markle Prince Harry interview seen around the world. Uh, And then I just finished interviewing uh, Veronica Gallo, who's one of the leaders of the movement that helped win the fight for abortion legalization in Argentina. So she is a really cool, inspiring activist that you will want to hear from.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to hear that. That that movement was crazy.
0: It, It truly, like, we were just chatting after, and I was like, I just still don't know how you guys. Beat an Argentine pope. Like, yeah, how is yeah, that possible? Yeah, you know, insane. it's like a godlike figure from your country. Anyway, uh two quick housekeeping things. Ben, you're going to love this fucking show. All right, I'm ready. Uh, our, our new sports podcast, Take Line, oh, yeah. it premieres on Tuesday, March 16th, right? So it's Emmy Award winning host Jason Concepcion and two time WNBA champion Renee Montgomery. They're going to host this fast, funny, smart, Thoughtful conversation about sports, culture, politics, like the ways they intersect on and off the court. I've listened to some episodes. The Knicks are going to be very present in this, which I know speaks to you. They just have like amazing chemistry. It's smart. It's funny. It's fun. It's a break from fucking COVID and Trump. Subscribe to Take Line wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel because the YouTubes are fun, too. Renee's got the coolest background uh, i think of anyone at crooked media so we all need to step up our games i know i'm saying this to you are you in your childhood bedroom uh, i am in my childhood bedroom <laughs> yeah yeah Is, are those all your books from high school on the
1: wall no uh, some yes a- including actually like children's books from when i was a kid but uh, my parents did that thing right like when you went away to college and they immediately completely overhauled your room and <laughs> yes. turned it into an office you know like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. no nostalgia you know like no posters <laughs> yeah. on the wall
0: you know so it's like your parents' stuff that is like the JD Salinger collected works. I, I, sort exactly.
1: Of. <laughs> yeah, it's like my, my parents' <laughs> stuff and like a blend of Winnie the Pooh and JD Salinger on the book.
0: Perfect. 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 Uh, one other quick thing. You guys have heard all of us ranting and raving about H.R. One, this big democracy reform bill that would make voting easier and partisan gerrymandering basically save the Democratic Party from getting run out of office by Republican voter suppression efforts for a decade. Uh, If you want to learn more, if you want to get involved, if you want to help it get passed, go to votesaveamerica.com slash for the people votesaveamerica.com slash for the people. Ben, you want to talk about another hack? Why not? So these stories are always equal parts like scary and confusing to me. So Microsoft announced that tens of thousands of users of its Microsoft Exchange server email software had been hacked in an effort that was likely sponsored by the Chinese government. This hack supposedly will impact small businesses, towns, cities, police departments, local governments. Brian Krebs, a blogger focused on cybersecurity, reported that uh, it was a Chinese hacking group and that they have taking control of maybe hundreds of thousands of exchange servers worldwide. Microsoft said the Chinese targeted infectious disease researchers, law firms, colleges, universities, defense contractors, think tanks, and NGOs. That list makes a lot of sense to me. Microsoft also noted in a blog about this hack that this is the eighth time in the past 12 months that they've disclosed a nation-state-backed hack like this. Uh, Apparently, these hackers started stealing data then on January 6th. As the Trump fans were like marauding through the Capitol. So, you know, I hope the QAnon shaman's email is safe. Uh, <laughs> Microsoft has patched the software, but those patches don't fix the cases where the hackers got in. They installed back doors that give them access in perpetuity. So, Ben, there was also this confusing report in the New York Times that said the US government was about to retaliate against Russia for the solar winds hack using, quote, covert counterstrikes and then public sanctions. That story got amended to say they were going to use sanctions and like clandestine actions. I don't know what's going on here. Here's my question for you. You're sitting in the White House now. You're like with Jake and, and the crew. How do you think the NSC or the White House can approach these problems in a systematic way so that every month or so you aren't spending like a dozen hours in some situation room meeting trying to tailor a response narrowly to like a specific set of circumstances or country or or incident, you know? Because this feels like it could become all-consuming.
1: Yeah, I I actually thought a lot about this when when you raised this issue for the episode. I think there's three things to this, um, and and I think what what people should understand, you know, it can be confusing, it can feel opaque, but you know, you've heard about Solar Winds, now you've heard about this Microsoft hack. These are like massive, massive hacks of enormous amounts of American public and private infrastructure. And what's clear is that, you know, Russia and China and other actors too are clearly becoming less and less kind of constrained and more and more aggressive in their hacking. Yeah. Um, and you just can't avoid the fact that we wake up to one of these with increasing frequency. So how do you deal with that beyond the one-offs? I think the first thing people have to understand is there needs to be an enormous investment in securing, updating the digital infrastructure of this country, you know. Um, and by the way, we've, you know, just think about COVID. Think, think of those of you looking for vaccines, like the, the public health infrastructure of every state um, oh varies God, yeah. significantly, right? And one of the things I think they'll probably talk about in the White House is they're going to do a big infrastructure bill, right? You know, the next big domestic spending bill after the huge win of the rescue plan is some build back better bill. And we've heard a lot about climate change, clean energy infrastructure as the centerpiece of that. But if they're serious about kind of updating and securing American infrastructure, this may have to be a part of it because like, mm-hmm. we are vulnerable and that vulnerability compromises privacy, national security, it could compromise people's you know, wealth, it can comp- compromise uh, the intellectual property of companies. And and at a certain point, there needs to be like a strategic effort to, to make this country more resilient against these hacks. I think then also we have to talk to our allies, right, about shared approaches. Are there norms and standards that we can try to set with like-minded countries as a start to both secure ourselves against these kinds of hacks, but also to try to just strengthen our hand to go to the Russians and the Chinese and try to get them to cut this out and try to set some boundaries around what is done. And by the way, I'm sure that, you know, the Europeans in those discussions will say, we need to talk to you about the Snowden yeah, disclosures right. and privacy. So I'm not, to, to those, don't at me. Um, I We're a part <laughs> of this discussion too. Uh, sure. I, I totally get it. Although I don't know, you know, espionage is a bit different than some of the stuff that's been, been emanating from Russia, obviously, and, and China as well. And then lastly, to that New York Times story, this question of whether to, to respond to hacks is incredibly complicated, because on the one hand, you want to, Respond uh show that there's some cost on the other hand, do you want to go down a slippery slope of like cyber war? I don't you know, and I thought the time story didn't surprise me in that it suggested that they weren't gonna respond kind of across the board. They were gonna do the kinds of things to send a message you know to Putin, Hey, look what we could do you know we can we can get into your whatever power grid or your, right. you know, just to send that message of be careful here. Uh, I'd be careful. Again, I don't think that the long term answer is all out cyber war between America, Russia, and China. I would like to think it's better defenses, some international cooperation, and then some effort to multilateralize these conversations.
0: Yeah, it seems like um, the NSA and, and the various people in charge here took all these steps to try to preemptively hack adversaries as a way of, of deterring them or preventing these hacks. And, and maybe we skipped over the hardening of our own defenses part, because it seems like, uh, yeah. look, I, I'm not saying the U.S. government should be able, should be defending like every zero day hack on Microsoft exchange software or something like that. But it just, I don't know, the seal is unsustainable and whatever we're doing isn't working.
1: It is. And there's this kind of patchwork, right? There's 50 states, how many municipalities, how many private sector actors, never mind federal networks. And at the end of the day, you know, again, I'm not a techie here, but I do know it's cheap to do this. You know, it doesn't cost hundreds of billions of dollars to mount cyber attacks. And look, you know, even with better security, like you find a back door, like you steal someone's password who's an administrator. You, I don't, you know, right. I'm not a hacker, but like, you know, the chances are that there are going to be vulnerabilities, particularly if you haven't hardened your defenses enough. And it feels like, again, this is something where, the government's going to have to step in and, and try to get better standards across security and probably have to invest some money in strengthening our, our digital infrastructure.
0: Yeah, and clearly, um, you know, small businesses, state and local governments, they need help because, like, yeah. they probably don't even have an IT guy. I mean, she's uh, like, Media didn't really have one until recently. So, like, yeah, people need some help.
1: Totally, uh, yeah. And again, that's an, I think the state and local point is important because you don't want cities vulnerable, states vulnerable.
0: Yeah, like software that hasn't been updated since, like, Windows 98. It's like, you know, Not good. Um, Let's do an update on the war in Afghanistan, Uh, because, you know, we talked about some of these negotiations before, you know, in February of 2020, the Trump administration cut a deal with the Taliban that said the U.S. is going to withdraw all of our troops by May 1st of this year, 2021, in return for some commitments by the Taliban specifically to not attack U.S. troops and to break with Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups. The Taliban have honored their commitment to stop attacking U.S. forces, but they have ramped up attacks on Afghan forces and they have not cut ties with al-Qaeda. So now Biden's team is scrambling to figure out what to do about that May 1st deadline. Last month, uh, late last month, Secretary of State Tony Blinken sent a letter to Ashraf Ghani, president of Afghanistan, Uh, That was framed as sort of an update on Biden's thinking and in that letter later leaked. The main proposal in this letter was to create a United Nations led peace summit in Turkey to help push the Afghans and the Taliban to negotiate like a constitution, a government power sharing agreement and a ceasefire. The letter also proposed some other meeting that would include like regional countries, Russia, China, Pakistan, Iran, India, to figure out ways to support Afghanistan's institutions there was an appendix, I guess, to this letter that wasn't posted publicly that included specific policy proposals that got into more granular detail. But Ben, what I think jumped out at a lot of people was the relatively harsh tone of the letter, yeah, considering yeah. it was a diplomatic no message yeah. to the head of state. There's also a diplomatic message from one of the nicer guys <laughs> yeah, I, I know, anything, Tony yeah, Blinken, yeah. like truly like yeah. one of the most charming, friendly, kind people. Um, it wasn't a mean letter. It's just sort of like tough. What did you make of the letter? What did you make of some of the proposals that have leaked out, and and what do you think the odds are at this point that Biden gets all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan by by May first? I saw right before we came in that uh, Bob Menendez, Senator Bob Menendez, uh, suggested that Biden should not meet that deadline.
1: Well, I like the good thing in the letter is this idea of of, of trying to get more of a multilateral discussion going with all the relevant. Yeah. Neighbors, right? You know, Russia, China, Turkey, uh, Iran, even right, Pakistan. Yeah, Iran. Of course, Good for them right? for putting Iran in there. Yeah. yeah, you know, look, all these nations mess around in Afghanistan. They all have interests there, and I've long thought that, you know, at, at the end of the day, you need to get everybody around that table. Uh, and look, the Pac- Pakistan has been essential to the Taliban strength, for instance, and 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 ultimately, you know, basically violating Afghanistan's sovereignty. But all these other countries have interests and could help uh, if those. You know, countries start pushing in a similar direction, because as the letter points out, while we all have very divergent interests in Afghanistan, uh, none of those countries really have an interest in a complete collapse there, a, an all-out civil war again, yeah. um, and not many countries, maybe Pakistan, you know, would want to see the Taliban just overrun the place again either. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So internationalizing it, I think, a good idea. Um, the the tone. Was a bit off-putting to me, because at the end of the day, it's the Afghan government. Ghani can be, I guess, a difficult interlocutor, but he is the elected president. And you know the proposals that leaked from the U.S. You know they, they're not surprising. It's basically like an interim government that brings in a bunch of Taliban people with a bunch of current Afghan government people as a bridge to some election, and then all kinds of arrangements made for the Constitution that kind of balance, the Taliban's interest in an Islamic state with protections for women and minorities that I think we would definitely want to to, to uphold. And I guess the one challenge here is that the criticism we've made of Trump's deal was it, it seemed to go too far towards elevating the Taliban and kind of diminishing the Afghan government. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and he, the letter kind of continued that, and it fell exile like Khalilzad, the envoy I, I bet he had a heavy hand in that letter, you know? Um,
0: he's frustrated, yeah.
1: Yeah, and he's frustrated, and I get it, and you want some urgency here. But the, the 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 challenge, though, is on the one hand, you're pushing them with all this urgency. On the other hand, you're just launching this new international process with all these other countries, and the idea that you're going to align all these pieces before May 1st, I just don't think is that likely. And And the way to align those pieces can't just be that the Afghan government kind of concedes everything at the table either, you know? Um, and so, I, I'd like to see if this—you know—give give yourselves a little time here um, to to test whether there's any you know progress can be made with this international formula, to try out these ideas within the negotiations. I'm sure they have been already, but between the Taliban and the Afghan government, uh, and to try to get the Afghan government more comfortable with the idea that um, that that some of the hard-fought gains of the last twenty years are going to be protected constitutionally. And look, you can't, you can't make guarantees here, but people should check out the Dexter Filkins piece in The New Yorker. Like, The Taliban is assassinating one by one the leaders of Afghan civil society. Like, This is not yep. subtle. They are preparing journalists to and, take yeah. over that country and terrorize their opponents. And in that environment, I think it's fair that those people would want to make sure that whatever government structure that they're signing up for isn't like a back door for the Taliban to just come over and take over the place. So- as someone who's very much supported ending this war and getting the U.S. troops out, um, I, I do just think that like the May 1st timeline is this kind of artificial Trump timeline that was thrown on there. It's 2,500 troops, right? We're not talking about the 100,000 troops that were there at the height of this. Just give this diplomacy that, uh, a bit more time and, and try to bring the Afghans along and, and understand their concerns and see what what types of assurances or uh, can be put into whatever interim government is negotiated so that that they're not just feeling like the U.S. is handing the keys over to the Taliban while we get our troops out um, in the midst of like what has been a pretty terrorizing several months in Afghanistan.
0: Yeah. All the things they're recommending are the right and in, in the necessary steps yes, that have exactly, to be taken. Yeah, I'm just, yeah. just imagining you and I getting Forced into a coalition government with Stephen Miller, Stephen Miller was also trying to kill us. Yeah, (laughs)
1: yes, that's a good.
0: That's happening,
1: and this is the key point. I I think it's again. I'm like it's here. They're trying to to get the troops out. They're trying to end this war. They're trying to uh, to, turbocharge diplomacy. Those are all worthy objectives um i just think you can give yourself a little runway to do that yeah um you know imagine if all those countries agree to show up that's a pretty ragtag group of countries you know like how it's going to take a few meetings right to to, yeah. to to get an international consensus just as you're trying to get an afghan consensus um and, and i don't think they're under huge pressure um uh, to hit the may 1 deadline i don't think the troops by the way at the end of the day are the most essential thing the most essential thing is what agreement can the afghans come to so we can you know the troops can come out a few months later Um, or whatever arrangement we make to support the Afghan security forces that we basically pay for, um, that's clearly going to be a part of this. So that's separate from whether we have troops there or not. There's a lot to talk about. I think, I think you know, they should give themselves a little time here, and I think they should take a tone that is a bit more. Um, even if Ghani is frustrating, it's not just Ghani. It's the Afghan people who are your audience, um, and particularly people who've who've put themselves on the line the last twenty years, started NGOs women who've entered politics who are worried that they're going to be killed um, if, if, uh, if, if this kind of thing goes through. And, and, and do, you got to see if you can do more internationally and with the Afghans to set the table a little bit better um, as, as you're winding down the war.
0: Yeah, I hope they take their time. I hope they do it right. Um, if Biden goes, sort of serious strikes uh, a Khashoggi MBS decision, Followed by uh, not getting out of Afghanistan on the timeline negotiated by Trump, I think that is that is going to be uh, lead to some angry people on the left, understandably, but, but hopefully And the Iran you know.
1: and 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 not exactly looking like he's in a rush to get in the Iran deal. I mean, see, but yeah. I, I I see that. I mean, look as someone who has like you know, I think like fairly progressive you know hopes for for the Biden administration. I don't know. I think that the Iran thing is a much bigger test than whether you know, the 2,500 troops leave May 1st or September 1st, you know? Um, uh,
0: I agree. I agree. So much of the criticism of Biden is impatience. You know what I mean? Like, you see a lot of people whacking him, uh, yeah. and then he later does exactly what they wanted him to do for, you know, $2,000 checks, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. um, well, here, here's another very important issue, both in terms of counterterrorism, then, but also to the left, which is, you know, counterterrorism policy and drone strikes. So the New York Times reported that Biden's team has imposed temporary limits on drone strikes and commando raids outside of battlefield zones like Afghanistan as they decide uh, how much oversight the White House wants to have, the NSC wants to have over those kinds of counterterrorism operations. The Trump administration had deferred authorities to the CIA, to the military about when to take strikes. They got rid of rules and processes that were designed to reduce civilian casualties. So Ben, you know, this review, it's like this is good, but not surprising Uh, President Obama, you know, you were there for all of this, took a number of steps to try to increase oversight over counterterrorism operations to reduce civilian casualties. The interesting thing I saw here is that the Times reported that Biden is considering potentially just tightening the Trump rules and not necessarily going fully back to the Obama era restrictions. They're also reportedly debating whether to disclose information about counterterrorism strikes uh, and estimated civilian casualty numbers. And what kind of stuff do you think these guys are debating right now? And, like, I don't know, is there a chance for Biden to move this conversation even further forward, right? I mean, now that drones are yeah. far more widely available than they were in 2009, 10, 13, 14, when Obama was really pushing these things, what role do you think the U.S. can or should play in trying to establish international rules and norms for their use in the same way we were talking about cyber?
1: So I actually think that this this is more important to kind of ending the forever war than you know when the twenty five hundred troops leave Afghanistan, right? Because this is about whether or not we're you know killing people with a kind of pretty vast architecture of intelligence and military assets in several countries spanning multiple continents, you know. Um, and I, I think there are a couple of questions. There's a question essentially of who signs off on a strike, and if if Trump right. pushed that decision making down to the military and the intelligence community. Uh, that definitely raises the risk of additional civilian casualties because they're much more aggressive, at least in the Obama years, um, in the targeting that they do, than than what would clear I think a process that was run through the White House. That's why they were always complain about the Obama White House being being micromanaging. But there's a bigger question here, right? So another thing that happened last week is that the Biden team put out that they're going to pursue an authorization for the use of military force. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the the authority under which we're at war and in all these places, frankly, and you know, when we began to explore this at the end, we tried to get one at the end of the Obama years. Part of what we wanted to do was say legally, you are only authorized to take any military action in these countries against these very specific organizations, because the 2001 AOMF is so broad that it's been used to take drone strikes in, in Yemen and Somalia and Libya and all manner of places, right? And, and so I think the AUMF and this review is an opportunity to say the burden of proof is back on the US government to go to Congress and make a case for why they need to take a drone strike anywhere, right? I mean, actually, I think the baseline assumption should be we don't need to take drone strikes. And the burden of proof is to go and say, well, no, there is this particular terrorist organization that has a particularly dangerous safe haven in X country. Let's say they think Somalia al-shabaab continues to pose a threat that requires drone strikes we when have we last had a debate about that as a country or a discussion or you know at least to our elected representatives in Congress and and so I think the the goal here should be to to shift the presumption away from you know the presumption has been for you know over a decade now we just do this we just take drone strikes and we do it in a whole bunch of places and what we're trying to do is calibrate civilian casualties and the, the numbers of these drone strikes, I think we should question core assumptions as to whether we need to be doing this at all. And again, if we do, be very specific. Don't just say we need authorities against anybody who's associated with Al-Qaeda anywhere, but say, no, no, this particular affiliate, You know, the Al-Shabaab is a threat in Somalia. Here is why. Mm-hmm. So we need an authority. I'm not even sure. Uh, maybe that would pass muster. Maybe it wouldn't. But I think that's the kind of Mental shift that needs to take place here. Otherwise, all you're, you're, you know, otherwise you're really just kind of turning up or down the the pace of these things.
0: Yeah, that's right. It, it does seem like right now. I mean, the, what was described in the New York Times about sort of the boundaries of this debate did seem sort of like a continuum from Obama to Trump. I do yeah. hope that there's a a broader set of conversations like you just described going on, in, that could honestly be scoped to efficacy, right? Like we keep talking about attacks on u.s troops serving in iraq from these iranian backed militias we respond allegedly to deter them and then they happen again at some point it's like is this working <laughs> you know like i look like i'm not saying hang our guys out to dry never respond if they're getting attacked but like you do need to question these core assumptions like is this protecting them
1: and the same thing with with look and, and i people are right to say well what do you look at what you guys did the obama years that's totally fair. Um, and I'm saying we should be asking these questions now, so that they're asking them at the beginning of the Biden administration, because can we argue that these drone strikes haven't, in addition to killing at times innocent civilians, contributed to radicalization, contributed to instability in places? What is the cost of continuing to do this kind of forever? Because I, I will say, as someone who you know could defend individual drone strikes against you know certain Al Qaeda leaders um, through the Obama years. If you had told me in 2009 that we'd still be taking drone strikes in all the same countries in 2024, I would have been like, what? <laughs> like, I, I, mm. I would just not have assumed that the, the length of this thing, um, it, you know, as against the threat, uh, you know, posed by these groups, um, it it feels just way out of whack. And this is they yeah. have a chance in their first year to try to rethink it. I hope that they are as ambitious as possible. And I think it should interact with the congressional question of of wh- whether to get a new authorization, or not whether, but to get a new authorization that they use military force that is limited to certain countries and certain groups, and time limited too, by the way. It's not open-ended. Yeah. You know, three years and has to be renewed so that there's not the kind of blank check 20-year forever war circumstance that we've had.
0: Yeah, and look, I don't think either of us are naive to the risk either, because you know, we lived through, through yeah. Faisal Shahzad and the Times Square bombing. We lived through Umar Farouk Abdul Matalab, the Christmas Day bomber. We both lived worked through, you know, I lived through, meaning we were in the White House, the uh the the AQAP package bomb yeah. that nearly took out, you know, planes landing in the United States. So there were instances, I think, where there were like real threats that were focused on the US that needed to be deterred and some sort of like military. Response will likely be part of that, but to your point, I mean, Jesus Christ, a decade plus later, if the policy has not gotten rid of the problem, you got to kind of question the policy. Yeah, and
1: one more way to think about this is like, are, should if there is a target, a, a terrorist training camp that is tied to like an active plot against the United States, right? Okay, like that's something that I think there's there'd be pretty broad support in the country for, but that's not what most drone strikes are anymore. You know, the, the, these are kind of steady efforts to degrade. You know terrorist organizations. You know, and, and do we need? You know, to be the,
0: the military will see like activities that appear to be threatening, yeah, right? Exactly. Like and s- six guys in Afghanistan in the back of a truck with guns and the thing driving is driving towards a base.
1: Yeah, a drone strikes should be more extreme and exceptional. It should not be a, a normal it's tool too for the open ended for decades like this. And, and you know, yeah. I think that that's what should be on people's minds here.
0: Let's turn to Senegal, because uh, last week, Senegal's main opposition leader, usmane Sonko, was arrested for allegedly raping a masseuse in February. Very serious allegation. Uh, he denies, Sonko denies the allegation. He claims he was arrested because Senegal's president, Macky Sall wants him sidelined for political reasons. So Sonko, this opposition leader, supporters took to the streets. Uh, there have been about a week plus of pretty violent protests. Amnesty International says that at least eight people have died. That's as of today, Tuesday. Then, you know, again, these allegations are quite troubling. Uh, and the site of this, these violent protests in Senegal, which has been a, a stable democracy for like several decades, half a century, has a lot of people worried. Um, president saw one re-election in 2019 with 58 percent of the vote. His opponents are worried that he will run again for a third five-year term. Uh, Saul's critics also point out that several of his previous political rivals have been arrested on corruption charges. So they're suggesting that all of these arrests are, are part of a pattern. I, I don't know. Um, ben, what do you think the stakes here are for Senegal, the broader region, and, and U.S. relations with Senegal?
1: So putting aside the, the the rape allegations, right, which, you know, you and I are talking about, we, we it's so hard to evaluate, and it's obviously a serious charge. Separate from that, there are already concerns about Macky Sall. And I think what the stakes are, what's kind of depressing to me about this, Tommy, is that we went to Senegal in 2013, in part because we were so pleased with how the election the previous year had happened. Macky Sall had been the opposition figure, and the outgoing president had, for a time, looked like he wasn't going to allow for a peaceful transition of power. And a kind of coalition of civil society and youth helped propel Macky Sall into the presidency. And he seemed to be the younger, more reform-minded, civil society-friendly leader in West Africa, a region that has had you know, some democratic progress in, 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 in places like Senegal and Ghana, but at the same time, a region that has also occasionally had leaders who changed, have a change of heart and, you yeah. know, um, and suddenly they, they want to do away with the term limits that they used to support. Suddenly they're attacking the civil society organizations that used to be their allies Suddenly, they're making deals with the same kind of corrupt actors that young people are frustrated with, and that's certainly been the case uh, in Senegal. And because and the stakes are, if if a country like that that was on a relatively positive democratic trajectory backslides like this, and you have uh, yet another leader change, you know, changing the game and trying to stick around in power and quash his opponents, you know, that's adding to a trend that we're seeing again, not just in Africa but in, in lots of places. Um, and you obviously talked to. Bobby Wine, you know, Uganda's not had the same democratic progress as Senegal, but that's obviously an acute example of it. So I think it it really matters because you want, you know, Senegal has been a relatively, you know, democratic, relatively prosperous country in in that region uh, with a vibrant civil society, a really engaged civil society. And you see that in these protests and you really don't want to lose that. So I think that 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 the number one interest here, uh, separate and apart from obviously whatever the you want, wh- however this case goes forward, you'd like it, it not to be politically motivated, but driven by the facts. Uh, you'd like to see, you know, uh, I think support for Senegal civil society and, and 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 in a sense that you know a guy like Macky Sall should should be the Macky Sall who who he was when he was first running for office, and not the one who's seeking to hold on to office like this.
0: Yeah. Well, well put. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure we'll keep watching this story. I'm going to jump to Brazil because it's, I don't know, it seems related is the wrong word, but, but interestingly similar. So major news out of Brazil this week: um, a Brazilian Supreme Court justice threw out uh, criminal cases against former president Lula da Silva, which will allow him to run for office again. So Lula was the president from from 2003 to 2010. He was preparing to run again in 2018, but was ruled ineligible because he was convicted of corruption charges back in 2017. That cleared the path for far right candidate uh, Jair Bolsonaro to win. Uh, So Lula da Silva is seen as the biggest political threat to Bolsonaro. He's the world's best hope for getting rid of Bolsonaro, who like openly pines for the days when Brazil was a military dictatorship. Giddily watches the rainforests get burned and you know exacerbate global warming. So we got to get him out of office, Ben. I mean, this is an amazing story. Yeah, uh, it, you know, credit by the way to The Intercept Brazil, which uh, broke a bunch of stories about how some of these anti-corruption cases against people like Lula were totally politicized uh, and rigged. Are you? I mean, I am I wrong to feel a burst of of hope from this news? Like Lula defeating Bolsonaro would be a huge deal.
1: I think so. I, I, I first of all, yeah, because I mean, there's it's clear that whatever you think of Lula, the, there was clear political motivation. I mean, the the judge, you know, who who with glee, you know, pursued these charges. Then came into the Bolsonaro government. Uh, yeah, it was like, know, like I,
0: texting like prosecutors about what yeah, to do. Yeah, I mean, stuff.
1: so the, 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 and, and look, the reality is that Bolsonaro, this kind of giant buffoonish Trumpian figure of the Brazilian right, had, you know, on the back of these corruption charges and just through the kind of force of his personality, kind of, you know, uh, splintered the opposition and and was taking Brazil in a very bad direction and has been. It sets up a potentially fascinating election where you would have a populist of the right against a populist of the left. I, I couldn't really think of another example where you had kind of two perfect avatars of very different brands of populism going against each other. Um, you know, Lula, very much uh, of the working class, um, mm-hmm. you know, out of the labor movement, um, out of the opposition to the military dictatorship in the country, and, and Bolsonaro, who embraces the military dictatorship. And it's a healthy competition, and and but I would hope you know that the Lula would win that competition, um, and like you say that that's tied to, to to Brazil. It's also tied to protection of the Amazon and um, to uh, you know beating back far right politics globally. So uh, you know uh, very surprising news um, and, and potentially hopeful news. And I will say in the long run, though, I, I don't know that the long term answer to Brazilian politics. I want to be, be clear here is Lula. I mean, he's a 75-year-old no. man. And so par- right. part of the problem has been that these giant figures suck up all the oxygen. The best thing would be a young generation, you know, um, coming to the fore. Um, uh, and we've had a great young Brazilian parliamentarian on on this on this podcast before, Tabata. Uh, but I, I, I think right now, um, Lula is a better option than Bolsonaro. Let's just put it that way.
0: Yeah. I mean, Bolsonaro is like even more deranged Trump So, Ben, uh, move over Freedom Fries. Uh, Here comes patriotic pineapple because people in Taiwan are consuming massive amounts of pineapple after China banned imports of the fruit from Taiwan, citing some sort of biosecurity reason. I guess there was like a bug or a fungus or something that didn't pass inspection. So in response, consumers in Taiwan uh, ordered in three days more than 41,000 metric tons of pineapple, which is basically what Taiwan exported to China last year. The Wall Street Journal had a fun write-up of this, uh, and they noted that doctors have had to start warning people in Taiwan about overconsumption of <laughs> pineapple, that it could lead to health problems, and that a whole pineapple is about 1,000 calories, so you don't want to put you know one down uh, you know, m- multiple times a week. <laughs> Interestingly, but, um, pineapple translates to prosperity, in one local Taiwanese dialect. So it's, it's interesting the way that gets interpreted. So if you're a small business owner, it's great. If you're a doctor or a firefighter, it's seen as ominous because that means you'll get really busy. And if you're a firefighter, you don't wanna be busy. So they actually had to do like studies to dispel this myth, amazing. Anyway, that is everything I know uh, about pineapple in Taiwan. Uh, are you going to have pineapple pizza later? I know you're in New York uh, and that's, you know a delicacy there,
1: right? I, I I don't like to mix the two. I do like a good pineapple though. Um, I like a good pineapple. It's an underrated fruit. It's just hard to get good. I mean, when I'd never been to Hawaii in my life until, you know, we went, um, you know, with, with our former boss. Um, Cause like I had to go be a staffer on that trip, the pineapple in Hawaii, once you've had good pineapple and I hope the Taiwanese pineapple is good. It's much better than the, the frozen stuff in the, the, the supermarket. I will say it's, it's a, Cool story, but it's like also like a reminder to like watch Taiwan, man, because like, there's know, interesting I stuff know. going on there, and they're moving away from China. Like that, the One of the outcomes of that Hong Kong protest movement is ha- Taiwan took one look at that and was like, we don't they're want like, that to happen that. to us. And the other thing that I find interesting is that if you look at the protests, we haven't talked that much about the protests in Thailand, but then obviously, of course, in, in Myanmar, there's an element that was learned from the Hong Kong protests about boycotting certain businesses buying other things in some cases you know trying to to boycott chinese products because of their support for um you know some of these policies so this is like a new <laughs> this is a new thing um where you know i mean people in america think that where this place has been taken over by politics where all your choices uh, are politicized um including like the things you buy and the content you download or whatever, that's happening everywhere. It's, it's, it's yeah. a fascinating trend for, for better or worse, you know, um, uh, we'll see.
0: I have an idea for you. So this week, it's been a week of like, you know, clout chasing uh, clickbaity Twitter controversies, right? Like the New York Times saying yeah. that California has the best bagels. Bullshit. You should do a reverse and tweet a photo of uh, a pineapple-covered piece of pizza and be like, ooh, love a New York slice. It's like so good to be home. And then a bunch of obnoxious blue check mark yeah, yeah, like Brooklyn-based yeah, yeah. journalists yeah. will dunk on you and not know that they're only helping you get attention. Like, that's actually, this is basically what I'm describing is Andrew Yang's Andrew, mayoral I was going to say, like, <laughs> I,
1: I, I would do that, except I think Andrew Yang's already going to do that. I think he's one step ahead of me.
0: Like, he might he's the market, know, he yeah. tweet,
1: like, a, a shipment of California bagels that he got or something.
0: Yeah, he's just uh, trolling his way to the mid to the mayor's Do office. you, be, you notice
1: it? Like since Trump left, that this is what Twitter argues about now. You know, yeah, <laughs> like, we're yeah. all stuck inside,
0: so we got nothing to do. It's yeah. just the saddest place on the planet. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about one other really important story that's I, I would I would call infuriating, but not surprising. So, uh, the State Department's Global Engagement Center, Ben, uh, an organization you know well, they've identified a Russian-backed campaign to undermine confidence in Western COVID vaccines. So. They're doing that by playing up the risk from the side effects uh, or, or claiming that like MRNA development, uh, that the process was rushed, that it's unsafe. Right. And they're pushing these stories to outlets you've never heard of, like New Eastern Outlook or Newsfront. But the State Department says that these publications they listed four in total are controlled by various Russian intelligence agencies. I think it's kind of fun that, you know, the the SVR, like the GRU, everybody's got their own little news outlet. Uh, The goal seems to be to like denigrate the West uh, and promote Russia's Sputnik V5, I guess, vaccine. We talked previously about how, you know, back in the 80s, the KGB ran a major disinformation campaign to spread the idea that the U.S. had invented HIV-AIDS. And so that's why I said that this latest disinfo campaign is not surprising But these efforts can be incredibly effective and incredibly damaging. Ben, what did you make of the State Department's decision to go public with these accusations? Is there more that you think they should be doing to combat this kind of disinformation?
1: So what's interesting is like when we set up the GEC, the Global Engagement Center, late in the Obama years, one of the thoughts was that they would do this all the time you know, just Hmm. constantly blow the whistle on Russian disinformation campaigns, which are not that hard to spot if you're looking for them. Right.
0: They're pretty brazen. Uh,
1: Yeah. And then, you know, Trump people kind of, you know, obviously put the kibosh on the GEC for a while. It made me wonder how much didn't get revealed in the Trump (laughs) years uh, about what Russia's doing. I think this is really good to do. And I think it's good to do with other countries, too, like that- you know, just, just informing people, you know, w- when you spot it, put it out. Like, the, the, here's what the Russian disinformation is. People should be aware uh, of, of how people are trying to manipulate them. Whatever the U.S. government knows about Russian disinformation campaigns or any disinformation campaigns for that matter, why not make that public? It's a public health issue in this case, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just shitty. I mean, it's, it's so, so shitty. shitty. I mean, we, we talked about this like, I want the Russian vaccine program to succeed wildly. I want the Chinese vaccine to succeed wildly. I p- pick a country, you know, Iran, uh, you, know, you know, like this should, this is, there should be no politics, no geopolitical competition, like, like human beings should get vaccines. And that's ultimately good for everybody, right? Because the more we stamp out this virus, the more places we stamp out this virus, the safer we all are from it, you know? So come on, GRU, like d- go back to trolling, Democrats, you know, like, like,
0: you know, don't 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 get into this vaccine bullshit. It's really, really pretty terrible. Uh, Here's some good news. Uh, So on Sunday, President Biden nominated two women to four star commands. It's the highest command you can have. Uh, General Jacqueline Van Ovo's nomination to run the Transportation Command and Lieutenant General Laura Richardson's nomination to run Southern Command will now go to the Senate for confirmation. What's unusual about this process is that their promotions were approved during the Trump administration, but held back by Mark Esper, who's then the Secretary of Defense, because the Pentagon was concerned that Trump is so sexist and so racist that he wouldn't approve any candidates who weren't white males for these positions. You know, but you know, look, enough of that asshole. So, uh, (laughs) General Vanowost is she's currently a a four-star officer. And the only woman of the forty-three four-star generals and admirals in the U.S. military. So, you know, credit to Helene Cooper at the New York Times for being all over this story. Congratulations to uh, General Ovost and Lieutenant General Richardson on their new jobs, uh, and uh, I'm glad they got this done.
1: Yeah, no surprise that you know, Trump. I mean, remember, you know, he liked people to look central casting. And central so casting. Yeah. I feel like every general he promoted was like a square-jawed white dude with like, you know. Crew cut or something, you know. Um, But look, it was you know I I was in a lot of rooms with a lot of national security officials, and there were uh, very few women in uniform um, uh, at the four star level. Um, Clearly, there was a huge need to promote gender equity there. Because by the way, if you go into a room full of enlisted people, there are a lot of women there. Um, So the the upper it's it's not a matter of they are not women in the military. The upper ranks of the military did not reflect. Uh, the 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 younger ranks now part of that's generationally these people are climbing up the ladder but that means they should be allowed to climb up the ladder I hope over time think of the the joint chiefs of staff like that's always a bunch of dudes or combatant commanders and so this is beginning to crack into the four star space hopefully that means uh, you know the the joint chiefs will start to have more gender diversity and you know that's that's important for equity it's important for for the perspectives you get from people of different backgrounds, and yeah it's it's just a good thing um and and it's good that joe biden he really he you know today he put out a photo of him with these two generals in the Oval Office and saying he wanted everybody in the country to see this is what a general looks like. that's great i mean i'm gl- I'm glad that they're going out of their way to to signal that they're doing this,
0: yeah, I am too uh, all right, Ben, let's give the people what they want. Let's talk about the royal interview. you are our royal correspondent so. Uh, As everybody on the planet probably knows, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry sat down with Oprah for this exclusive interview about all things royal family life and why they left the UK. Uh, I will admit that going into it, I was like, I could care less about this conversation. And then once it started, it was riveting Um, in case you missed it. Here's some of what we learned Uh, at times. Megan felt so isolated uh, and abandoned that she contemplated suicide. We learned that the royal family didn't want Harry and Megan's son Archie to be a prince, which meant he wouldn't receive security. Uh, uh, we learned that a member of the royal family expressed concern about how dark Archie's skin would be, which is horribly racist. Obviously, um, but I also just like I found her her the way she talked about the royal family to be fascinating because like I, I feel like I almost had the same perspective that she did going in, like. She talked about working in Hollywood, right, and being around famous people like we've been around presidents, but she said it was like there was no preparation for the singular nature of the monarchy in the UK and the way they're looked at and the way, you know, the press harassed them. Uh, Today, Tuesday, the 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 royals finally released a statement saying the whole family saddened by what they heard. Uh, and that the issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning and they'll be taken seriously and addressed by the family privately. It was not the best statement I've ever seen. So Ben, I, I guess like I've never seen a group of people or an institution have its reputation as thoroughly damaged as this in like in one shot. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I Do you think this could portend like the end of the monarchy? Is that something that's even possible? What did you take away from this? What were your thoughts watching?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I was trying to come up with like the the world though angle on this um, because uh, I mean the human angles you know have watched through the discourse appropriately with a lot of focus on on the things you talked about, um, and I do have to say it was it was just riveting to watch and to see you know. When when she was talking, I was thinking – because she got some shit from people being like, well, how could you not know what you're signing up for? It's like the – it's a very strange institution. <laughs> um, and then I thought when Harry came in and he was kind of talking about the symbiotic relationship between the royal family and the British tabloid press um, and, and how that organism had kind of savaged her. That yeah. is a very unique – like I don't That's think you weird. can understand that from the outside – Um, it's a very strange world. (laughs) Um, but, but what, so in terms of consequences, I, I don't know that the royal family is, you know, in danger of, of its position, but I think that there's a number of big problems that they have. Um, one, this is a time of like, you know, real questioning about the national identity of the United Kingdom. Right, which is a mm-hmm. United Kingdom of a bunch of different, uh, a bunch of different places: Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and England. Um, Post Brexit, you've got Scotland, you know, jonesing for independence, uh, particularly after Brexit. You've got Northern Ireland, you know, uh, obviously there are people in Northern Ireland who'd like to be part of Ireland. Um, and and so, what is the thing that holds this place together? And one of those things. Not the only one, obviously, but one of those things has been the royal family and yeah, the, queen the queen in particular. The queen, right? Like the queen is universally admired, right? But the question by like,
0: Harry and Meghan,
2: yeah. The Harry, men,
1: like, no, they, and I think they're still down with the queen. By the way, that was noticeable. They went out of their way. I, you know, totally my royal correspondent years perked up. They clearly they went out <laughs> of their way to be like the queen we respect. And Harry even put out that clarifying statement the queen was not the person who asked the color the color of the skin question. Um, but the queen is, is 93 years old. And right. the next in line is Charles, who's obviously, you know, complicated past there. Um, you know, they had Prince Andrew hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein. Like, is the royal family, after the queen passes, going to be the same unifying institution? This kind of interview is a pretty big blow to that concept, right? And yeah. like, posit, I'm not British, so, you know, I, I get it. I don't know this nearly as well as you guys, but just watching from the outside, that was a question I had. Um, and then even on a bigger scale, they're the center of this commonwealth, right? I mean, don't forget, there's still a commonwealth and the queen is kind of the head of state of a bunch of places where most people happen to be black and brown because they colonized those people, right? And these allegations of racism and... Um, you know this seeming kind of indifference to Meghan's concerns, you know, is probably not going to sit well in a lot of those places either. And it's not like Britain runs those places, or the royal family does, but it's important to them. So uh, they've got a lot of work to do. Um, you know, to to demonstrate that they get it, that they get. You know, you don't have to. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to Meghan and Harry. You don't even have to agree with every single thing she said to think that like you guys don't seem to be in the 21st century on some of this stuff, you know, um, yeah. uh, on issues of race, on issues of identity, um, and and they got to do some serious work, and they're they're they're
0: so cocooned
1: that it's hard for them to do that. So I think it is a big problem for them that they're gonna have to figure out.
0: Yeah, and like the 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 way that Megan was savage going into this, and the way that there are all these sort of hangers on were ready to not only preemptively attack her and defend the royal family against anything she said to the point I, I don't know if you saw this but some i don't know if they're like pranksters podcasters like some some young guys uh convinced a bunch of royal correspondents in quotes to do interviews in advance of the harry and Meghan oprah interview coming out and give their reaction to it yeah. before they'd even seen it and just like showed what asses these people are. Speaking of asses, uh Pierce Morgan basically yeah. lost his mind on live TV and then announced that he was leaving his show today. So this thing, like it's it's wild to watch this this interview, this conversation like tear apart the UK. I, I'm I, I have no sense of like what people's the the rank and file opinion will be on what happened though. I just I don't know how to read it.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many layers to to unpack. I mean, you know, because part of it is, you know, they've had a reckoning there about their imperial, you know, after after BLM, you know, yep. they're having their own reckoning about their imperial history, about statues of people involved in the slave trade, things of that nature. I have a a bunch of British friends of color, you know, who will pretty much uniformly tell you that that they don't feel like the kind of established institutions of power in that country. Have done enough to in you know to make clear that this is a multiracial, multiethnic country that understands you know the good and bad from its own past.
0: Can I just jump it? There was a conversation you had with David Lammy in Missing yeah. America, where he talked about just how homogenous the UK is, especially outside of London, that I found stunning. Yeah, you know, he really opened my eyes in that interview about like some of these issues.
1: Well, because you go to London and it's like the most Cosmopolitan, diverse city in the world. It looks just like New York, and and part of what David was saying is you go to Northern England, and he was empathizing with those people. You know, so you know, it's a David was saying, "Hey, I get it. Like, you know, the suddenly like this, your community that used to be homogeneous is changing, and you're you're made un, uncertain by that. So there has to be space for some dialogue. And this, you know, one of my resolutions post Trump is is to try to to look at polarization more clearly. Can they find some space for nuance in these conversations? Because when I was watching the British press response like you, it looked like ours, frankly, and everybody was in a camp, right? And the people who were kind of pro-royal were just guns fucking blazing, you know, just, just attacking Meghan, trying to poke holes in her story. I'm like, wait, let me just say two things here. One, this woman was clearly upset. Like, there's no question... And there's no question that she was savaged by the British press, and that there was something weird going on with the family there. So they left you, the monarchy.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like, they left the fucking uh, monarchy.
1: Uh, uh, like, seems like it would take
0: something to make that happen. And
1: and and, and so the, at least acknowledge. You can still try to like say she's wrong about something, but at least acknowledge her her pain. But the other thing is, you can say, you know what, I love the Queen and I love this institution, but we should have a conversation about some of these things. It doesn't. It's just in in obviously we're guilty of this in America too. Like they have to figure out a way to have these discussions where it's not all or nothing. You don't have to agree with every single thing that everybody in the monarchy does and, and savage Harry and Meghan who are pretty sympathetic younger people, one of whom is a woman of mixed race, uh, who's clearly been targeted in part because of that. And the other of whom lost his mother because she was hounded to death by the press, right? Like you, you can, you can, hold both ideas in your head, that, that that the monarchy has a role to play and that the queen has been great. But that, yeah, you know, I mean, last year they had a scandal with a guy who wouldn't apologize to the victims of Jeffrey Epstein, his pe- pedophile friend. I mean, they need to, a little modernization is in order here, guys.
0: Yeah, it was also very telling to see the worst people from like kind of the MAGA American right wing yeah. universe just dive into this story. Like I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw like, Donald Trump Jr.'s reaction to yeah. the Meghan Markle interview was like, "Hey man, no one fucking cares." Like, uh, I, well, look for them; it's just all culture wars all the time. It just shows you the thrilled how, to be a part of this.
1: Yeah, I was wondering where you. were- I was going to ask you about this, like the, how much the culture war is now like global? Because I, I was on today and I saw like like Rick Grinnell like dunking on people, like dunking on Meghan Markle or something. I'm like, what is happening? Like, Ugh. like do we have to. Does that mean I like I don't? Do we all have to take the opinions of the the, the same culture war? And it's a strange thing because you've seen some of the same people backing a Modi. You know, it's creepy.
0: Yeah, there there is a weird uh, drift towards authoritarianism, anti-social justice, anything there. Yeah, there's no like Charlie Kirk is tweeting out his extended rants on why he doesn't believe Meghan. You don't know Meghan Markle. You don't know anyone around her. Like all we could do is take these words at face value. And the, and the the royal family didn't deny the story.
1: I, I, yeah. Well, that's the thing. They didn't deny the story. And even if, like, you know, and I saw the same kind of like political tactics used, like, you know, Megan, you know, she's wrong about this one thing. So the whole story falls apart or something. And I'm like, yeah, can we just step back and accept that this person was in a lot of pain and that maybe you guys should think about why that is, you know? Um, and and instead, you're, you're, the this globalization of the culture wars, like I, I couldn't believe I was watching like a Twitter fight between like Love It and Megyn Kelly yesterday about like I know. Oprah or something. And, I mean, I, God bless Love It. I was on the side in the Twitter fight. But I'm like, why is Megyn Kelly like trolling around the internet looking to fight with people about Oprah and, and Meghan Markle? Like it's just bizarre.
0: N- none of the like these people are just so eager to attack Meghan Markle. They don't sit and pause for a second and wonder why uh, Prince Harry would decide to leave his life and criticize his own family to back her. Like, what is the suggestion that she's brainwashed them? It's just, it's and I total about, madness.
1: I've mentioned before that Obama and I went to Kensington Palace in 2017 and met with Harry for a while. And it was mainly about like, what he wanted to do and how he's thinking about, you know, helping young people around the world and things like that. And at the end Obama asked him about it and he's like it was clear he was totally in love with Meghan Markle like and happy about it like let him be happy that he yeah that they love each other the the one thing you you know that, that's clear from both of them that they do love is this family they're building like you don't have to to, to hate dunk on people um it, it just everybody should pull back here and reflect on on how we got here
0: yeah yeah well again credit to Oprah. Amazing interview. Oh, All yeah. The, Great the, the,
1: the, the goat, no question.
0: So uh, let's go from the monarchy to uh, another uh, uh, terrible person from a useless institution. Uh, we have a little bit of audio that we want to play for you guys before we go to our interview. Hello, I'm Nigel Farage, and Cameo is my latest incarnation. So if you want a message for Mother's Day, a birthday, a wedding to surprise somebody, I'm happy to do it. But I promise you, I will mention Brexit. I will mention Trump. God, I hope the pubs are open soon. <laughs> you know what that is, Ben? That is the ghost of Christmas future for Donald Trump. His ass is going to be on Cameo, <laughs> scraping together checks to pay his legal bills. Nigel Farage, right-wing asshole.
1: It just shows you what a grift this whole thing is, right? I mean, like, th- the the people who led political movements in the past didn't end. like, And Nigel Farage succeeded. He got Brexit. And what's he doing? He's doing cameo? Like, cameo. You, you know, like, th- that's what this guy's up to? I mean, don't get me wrong. I hope someone gets a good spoof cameo uh, from Nigel Farage that we can all laugh at. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, it's just kind of pathetic at the end of the day.
0: Pathetic is the word. Uh, okay. Let's take a quick break. uh, And when we come back, we'll have my interview with Veronica Gallo, who is one of the leaders of the movement that helped win the fight for abortion legalization in Argentina and sparked a global movement. So stick around for that. I am so excited to introduce our guest today. Uh, Veronica Gago is the leader of Niuna Menos, the feminist movement that helped win the fight for abortion legalization in Argentina. She's also a professor, she's a published author. Uh, Veronica, thank you so much for doing the show today.
2: Thank you. I am very honored to be here today.
0: Well, it's wonderful to have you. So, you guys had this enormous win last December in Argentina. Uh, abortion was legalized. It was thanks to incredible work by activists like you, uh, groups like Ni Una How were you able to build a coalition that was diverse and intersectional and strong enough to defeat anti-abortion politicians? You know, social norms. Uh, the the religious opposition to abortion. I mean, it's a pretty incredible feat.
2: Yes, I think that is uh, a great victory and we are uh, completely uh, excited. Uh, And Argentina became the fourth country in Latin America to legalize abortion after Cuba, Uruguay and Guyana, but it's the biggest one in in terms of its population, So it it is very important also because it's a regional battle. So we um, assume that our victory is also uh, a victory uh, for all the region. And we hope that the different countries and different national campaigns uh, will be the next in this kind of uh, legalization. I think that um, it was especially uh, important, this legalization in Argentina, and it's meaningful because it is a result of a massive feminist political mobilization. I think that this is the the main point because it's a part of a transnational uh, movement across Latin America, but also around the world. And, And because I think this, uh, this uh, movement has to be situated in the context of the five past years, in the context of the Nuna Menos movement, not one woman less movement. Um, that is, I think, uh, part of this transnational feminist movement that came from the global south. I think that is also important to, to highlight this origin and this uh, force that came from the, the global south. Um, I think that is very important. Also the role of the national campaign for legal, safe and free abortion. That is uh, a campaign formed 15 years ago as a national, uh, national wide network. And um, it, it has a federal character and it's also very, pluralistic in its composition. Mm -hmm. And uh, the symbol of the green scarf had become internationally popular as a sort of iconic or emblem of this feminist struggle. So we can see today in each uh, demonstration in very different parts of the world, this green scarf as a, iconic of this uh, feminist struggle. And also, I think that the the discussion about abortion is not only about the right to free abortion, it's also about uh, autonomy, Uh, it's also about sexual education, it's also about public health, it's also about uh, the struggle against the Catholic Church, Uh, very strong in our countries. Uh, So I I think that uh, the the struggle for the legalization of abortion is uh, more than uh, a demand to the parliament. It's more than just a right. It's uh, an expression of a collective desire of autonomy. It's an expression of a political movement that is changing the political agenda in our region, but also in the world. And it's also part of a way of doing politics, a way of uh, producing uh, a new form of activism that has to do with this uh, capacity to, at the same time, ask to the parliament for laws, and at the same time, uh, occupying the streets and producing assemblies in different uh, spaces and also uh, a collective organization with a very massive um, capacity to uh, mobilize, to protest, and to also uh, produce a a sort of new political vocabulary in terms of uh, Mm -hmm. feminism.
0: Well, and what's so interesting is, you know, I know that I've read that Unameno started as a response to really horrifying and pervasive gender-based violence, yes. and then evolved into this broader fight that included abortion rights. How did that evolution occur?
2: I think that the first Unameno demos- demonstration in 2015 was especially against femicide and against mm-hmm. violence, uh, machista violence, as we call it, but. Um, a year later, we called for a um, national women's strike and uh, in 2016, and we uh, connected with the strike, with the form of the strike, uh, the struggle against patriarchy and all different kinds of machista violence with the violence of neoliberalism. So I think that we could connect this um, this web of violences and we could uh, confront them with a new form of struggle that is at the same time an old form of struggle, that is the strike, but recreated by the feminist politics. So I, I think that this idea of the feminist strike was very powerful and in March 2017, we called for the International Feminist Strike. And uh, in that year, there were more than 50 countries in the International uh, Women's Strike. Uh, And now we are calling International Feminist Strike. The the names were also changing, um, expressing, I think, the the composition and the the very complex dynamic of the, the strike and uh, well since uh, 2017 um, until now we are organizing this uh, international strike each year each uh, march 8 so uh, we had yesterday the the uh, the, the a new uh, feminist uh, international strike and i think this is a very important political process that we are maintaining, that we are nourishing, that we are uh, producing uh, in and now in a very complex uh, situation and conjuncture in the midst of the pandemic. So I, I think that the strike is uh, a key element to understand how we uh, achieve to politicize machista violence and how we achieve to connect institutional violence, violence in workplaces, violence in terms of uh, domestic violence, of course, but also in terms of dispossession, exploitation, different features of neoliberal capitalism that I think for the first time, the feminist movement is able to produce as a massive discourse. Because we have different moments uh, when the feminist is a very powerful movement. But I think that the, the, the central feature of this cycle of feminist struggles has to do with this massive uh, composition, uh, especially in Latin America.
0: So, you know, for me, 2020 will always be defined by COVID yeah. and then these, these protest movements, right? I mean, we, we talk about it a lot. Uh, on this show, we love talking to activists like you who have been leading these movements and to, really to trade ideas. But, you know, we saw people in the streets in the U.S., in Latin America, yeah. in Hong Kong, in Belarus. It was truly global. Are there lessons that activists can or should take from your work and your success? And then relatedly, did you look to or, or speak with other leaders and other movements for ideas and like swap ideas?
2: <laughs> well, we we put a lot of activist work in doing political coalitions all the time. We are weaving all the time these kind of coordinations, uh, transnational coordinations, but also local coordinations with unions, with students, with different kinds of uh, migrant collectives, with uh, workers' collectives, of course. And I think that all the time we are trying to produce proximity between different kinds of conflicts and to uh, produce uh, a feminist proximity in terms of Mm -hmm. how we can build these um, new languages, uh, for example, to rethink work in terms of reproductive work, in terms of care, Mm -hmm. in terms of public health, for example, in terms of the pandemic crisis, but also how we can Combine the slogan Nuna Menos, not one woman less, in terms of uh, not one migrant less, for example. is a name of a collective that all the time is trying to, um, to, to rethink the, the situation of the collective uh, of migrants uh, in terms of uh, feminist perspective, but also feminist practice. And I think also the the situation of uh, racism, sexism in workplaces is all the time as part of, for example, different calls to assemblies in uh, different spaces. And um, I think that the, the, the main point is all the political time that we dedicate to build this kind of coalitions and alliances, and how we uh, sustain them in the, during all the year, not only for events, not only for special dates, how we uh, sustain and how, how we fit these uh, alliances uh, during all the year and being very close to different kind of conflicts
0: yeah uh, I, I know you've co-authored uh, an agenda a feminist agenda for what to do when the pandemic ends. What opportunities do you see for governments around the world really trying to build back after this this global pandemic uh, like wh- how can how can we make things better and come out of this you know in, in a better place than where we started?
2: Well I think that the the demand for public services is one of the the main points in terms of health, education, but also in terms of housing. I think that these three points are like a common sense after this year of pandemic in terms of uh, what is the uh, popular feminist uh, from below, like an agenda from below that we can uh, see after the, the pandemic crisis and still uh, it is a crisis that we are still in it. For example, here, the evictions is a big problem because uh, the debt related to housing is uh, explosive situation but also the uh, in terms of uh, uh, unemployment, in terms of how the popular networks here and especially feminist networks are in the front line in the crisis, producing all the time um, community cares or uh, communities of care and also communities of, um, for example, for agroecological food and all different uh, self-managed experiments to uh, confront uh, the crisis, but also to rethink the the life we want to uh, develop.
0: My last question for you. Uh, the U.S. has a, a a troubled history of interfering politically in Latin America and interfering in a lot of places. Uh, so I, I feel like I always want to tread lightly when I talk about, you know, what the U.S. can or should do to support movements like yours. But is there something, is there any sort of help you would like to see from the U.S. government or if not the government just People listening to this show who who you know hear about the work you're doing, want to express solidarity in some way, want to help in some way. Is there some way that people can contribute from, from outside of Argentina? Uh,
2: well, it is always a very important issue in terms of solidarity, but not only in terms of solidarity. I think uh, that this idea of coalitions in terms of political coalition is uh, very important. And for example, for the first uh, women's strike in 2016, it was very important for us, uh, different comrades uh, from Latin America in the United States, organizing the, the strike mm-hmm. in different uh, places, of course, like little events that started to produce different kind of networks uh, to organize uh, migrants and to uh, also to start to rethink politics in terms of this transnational solidarity. But I insist not only in terms of solidarity, I think that we have to go beyond solidarity and to build uh, in terms of uh, coalitions, in terms of cooperation, in terms of how we are rethinking this um, transnational dimension of politics from below.
0: Yeah, it's well, well said. Veronica Geigo, thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks for all the work you're doing. Um, I really appreciate it. It's great talking with you. Thank you. Thanks again to Veronica Geigo for joining the show. Uh, ben, I hope uh, you got a cool, you know, like, New York agenda all planned out. How does it feel there? Like, can you, are you dining outside? Like, what, what what's it like?
1: I'm not doing that, but I'm basically like going on walks and <laughs> long walks with my friends in Central Park or in other places. And like, people are out. The The, the dining outside is clearly cranking up.
0: Uh, the weather's starting to warm up. Um, How's the vibe? Is, there, is that Manhattan energy back? Like, I haven't I haven't been since February of last year.
1: It is kind of back. And I will say everybody wears masks more so than LA, you know, like you just don't see a person without a mask. So I think they've kind of uh, like adjusted to that culture more, but it does feel like they're pumping out the vaccine here fast too. They're going 24 seven. You can go in the middle of the night to like City Field. So it's it's a hopeful feeling, but, but I hope people are cautiously hopeful because just stick, you know, we've got a month or two to go before we get enough vaccine before you can really go back to like doing stuff like eating outside all the time
0: yeah well i hope uh, everybody gets it asap and uh, i hope you snag one on your way back yeah, from yeah. new york california so uh that's it for this week uh hopefully there will be another royal interview for us to talk about next week but until then we'll talk to you guys soon pod save the world is a crooked media production the executive producer is michael martinez our associate producer is jordan waller it's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos each week.